Assalamu alaikum, hello and welcome to the Voice of Islam Living History Program. My name is Dr. Muhammad Iqbal and I'll be your host for this program. As uh, listeners will know, the Living History team have embarked on a seven-part series on the history of money and trade. In the modern world, there is a common saying, especially in the West, that money makes the world go round. The phrase basically means that everything in the world would stop without money, and to some extent, this statement is true. Without money, you cannot afford a shelter on your head, buy the food to survive, or go from point A to point B. In part one of this series, entitled Genesis Cows and Crops to Coin Trade, my fellow panelists and I explored the origins of early trade and money. In part two of the series, entitled Rise of the Great Eurasian Empires, we looked at the way gold and silver took center stage in trade and conquest that shaped many of the large and influential empires, from the Achaemenid Empire of Cyrus the Great to the Athenian and Greek empires established by Alexander the Great, all the way to the Roman Empire. We also explored some of the crucial developments that took place across India and China, making them two of the biggest economies in the world. Today's program is part three of this series, and it's entitled Worlds of Conquerors, Prophets and Reformers. We will look at the role religion played in shaping trade between nations and empires and the relationships between them. In particular, we will look at the interaction between the Romans and the Jewish people leading to the rise of Christianity. How did people deal with loyalty to God and loyalty to the emperor? We will also look at the impact of Islam on the world and what difference it made to the relationship between the ruler and the ruled, ushering in the Muslim Golden Age. I'm once again joined by my panelists, Arif Ahmed and Amjad Hussain, to discuss these fascinating developments. And assalamu to both of you. Wa alaikum um, Just to set the scene then for this particular uh, uh, program, the role of trade and religion have often gone hand in hand in mankind's development. Mesopotamia, ancient Egypt and the Indus Valley produced the early civilizations and dazzling civilizations they were indeed. Empire builders left their marks with construction of great buildings and monuments and religious teachers left their marks through oral traditions or some form of written text. Then from about 1000 BC, the golden age of religious creativity dawned, what many historians call the Axial Age, when a series of revelatory experiences started occurring throughout the world. In the Near East, we saw the early Jewish prophets declaring that they had heard the word of the Lord claiming their obedience and demanding a new level of righteousness and justice in the life of the Israelites. In Persia, the prophet Zoroaster appeared. Greece produced Socrates and a number of other influential thinkers. China produced Lao Tzu and Confucius. And in India, the teachings of the Vedas and the Upanishads, which had been followed for many generations, were written. And Gautama the Buddha transformed religious thinking. Then came the writing of the Bhagavad Gita in India. After a significant gap, Jesus of Nazareth conveyed his message to the Israelites and Christianity emerged in the Roman Empire. And around 600 years later, the Prophet Muhammad 
brought the message of Islam. Now it is worthy of note that whilst the ancient religions of Sumer, Babylon, Assyria, Phoenicia, Egypt and much of Persia, the most powerful empires of their times and wealthiest empires are buried under the sands of time with remnants only to be seen in museums, there remains a living stream which runs down to us from Abraham's time some 4,000 years ago and perhaps earlier. Why and how has this particular form of religion or truth survived, whilst others, backed up by powerful states and wealthy states, have perished? So let us explore this subject in a bit more detail, and to do this there is no better example than the relationship between one of the most powerful empires the world had ever seen, the Roman Empire, and the troublesome and insignificant tribes or the nation of the Israelites or the Jews. Later on, we will look at the relationship of their cousins, the Ishmaelites, that gave rise to Muslims. So Amjad, I think that sets the scene nicely for our discussion, for starting from the Romans, so please uh, tell us a little bit. Thank you very much indeed. The Roman Empire, as we saw it in the last program, grew to an enormous size based on a belief that Roman gods gave the Romans the right to have dominion over others and ability to finance and manage such a large empire. The Romans were ruthless conquerors and once they had subjugated local populations, uh, their priority rather was to establish stability and increase trade and collection of taxes, thus making Rome richer. It was the Roman boast that their new subjects all benefited from the extension to them, uh, or Pax Romana, uh, the imperial peace, which removed the threat of barbarian incursion or international strife. Within the frontiers, there was indeed order and peace as never before. However, this did not reduce the violence which many subject people resisted Roman rule and the bloodshed that cost. The the ancient Rome of the Roman Empire was an agrarian and slave-based economy whose main concern was feeding the vast numbers of citizens and legionaries who populated the empire, especially the Mediterranean region. It was also one of the largest slave-based societies and economies of its time. Isn't that true? Oh, absolutely, indeed. You said absolutely right. The need to secure grain-provided provinces was one of many important factors that would lead to the expansion and conquest of Roman state. And conquest also provided a large number of slaves. Among these conquests were the provinces of Egypt, Sicily, Tunisia and North Africa. These areas were of vital importance in the processing and shipment of grain to Rome. The Romans established extensive trade routes on the land and sea. Roman roads are still in use today and are a lasting legacy of the Roman dominion. While a benefit of a large network of roads was uh, the transport of goods, obviously, and their most significant purpose was the fast mobilization of the legions. The largest industry in in ancient Rome was mining, which provided the stones for the enormous building projects and metals for tools and weapons that conquered so so much land, obviously. The Greece and northern uh, Italy, for instance, provided marble for the buildings that owed the ancients and modern people alike. Large quantities of gold and silver were mined in Spain to mint coins and create jewellery, while mines in Britain provided iron, lead and tin uh, for the use in weapons. 
So, although the Roman economy was dependent on slavery, Rome was not the most slave-dependent culture in history. Uh, according to Herodotus, amongst the Greeks in Sparta, the slaves' class known as the Helots outnumbered the free Spartans by about seven to one. And Athens had built its powerful empire with large numbers of slaves working in their silver mines and doing all the menial jobs, which even gave great satisfaction to the great Aristotle. Whilst laws in Athens prohibited the enslavement of Athenian citizens, it is recorded that slaves from outside Athens constituted about a third of the population, Arif. Yes, so actually in, in a remarkable contrast to other major uh, ancient cultures of the region, uh, the Achaemenid Persians during the time of Cyrus the Great, they formally banned most slavery um, of non-competence within the empire. Uh, and indeed, Persepolis, the ceremonial capital of, of the Achaemenid Persians, was built with paid labor. So you can see the contrast there. Um, estimates of the percentage of the population of Italy who were slaves ranges from 30 to 40 percent in the first century BC, upwards of two to three million people. And for the empire as a whole, during the period 260 to 425 AD, according to a study done by Kyle Harper, the state population has been estimated at just under 5 million, which represents about 10 to 15 percent of the total population of 50 to 60 million inhabitants. Uh, it's estimated that about 49% of all slaves were owned by the elite, uh, who themselves made up less than 1.5% of the empire's population. So you see these big disparatine figures. Now, interestingly, Roman slavery was not based on ideas of race. So slaves were drawn from all over Europe and the Mediterranean, including Gaul, Hispania, North Africa, Syria, Germany, Britannia, the Balkans, Greece, etc., and new slaves were primarily acquired by wholesale dealers who followed the Roman armies. So as an example, Julius Caesar once sold the entire population of a conquered region in Gaul, no fewer than 53,000 people, to slave traders on the spot. Out of um, all the peoples in the Roman Empire, one group which proved to be the most difficult to control and integrate into the empire were the Semitic people, the Jews. The Romans, having arrived in Judea, or Palestine as we call it, in 63 BC, under Pompey, the great general Pompey, had to wait till AD 135 to bring the troublesome Jewish community under its full control. The Jews, inheritors and guardians of an ancient belief in a single all-powerful God, were very adamant on being independent and not following Roman laws. The cultural encounter between the Jews and the Romans was to change both the conqueror and the conquered in a way that was to transform not only Palestine, but a very large section of humanity. From the bitter encounter of the Roman and Palestinian cultures emerged a new faith, that of Christianity. So again, take us through this interaction, uh, Amjad, please. The nationalistic and tribal character of the Jewish religion was deeply rooted in the Israelites and enhanced by a series of national disasters. The Israelites claimed descent from the patriarch Abraham, who probably lived around 2000 BC in Mesopotamia and migrated to Palestine. Driven by famine from their homeland, many of the Israelites migrated to Egypt sometime in the 17th century yeah. BC, where Joseph, one of the prophets, became a very powerful political figure. 
uh, second only to the great Pharaoh himself. However, the fate of the Israelites changed, and on many generations later, they became enslaved by the Pharaohs. Early in the 13th century BC, they freed themselves under the leadership of uh, Prophet Moses and fled from Egypt. During their subsequent wanderings in the desert, uh, separating Egypt and Palestine, the, the Jews formulated their unique religious code. According to the Torah, God revealed the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. These teachings were shared in time by the wanderers with other Hebrew tribes who had not been to Egypt, thus forming a confederation of the twelve tribes of Israel. Once they had reached Palestine, they became a very powerful kingdom by the year 1000 BC under the warrior king David and his son Solomon. But the Israelites' power did not last very long. In 722 BC, Israel, the northern kingdom, fell to Assyrians, who deposed most of its inhabitants. And in 606 BC, the Babylonians captured Nineveh and destroyed the Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom of Judea, for instance, was conquered by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, who took Jerusalem in 586 BC. He burned down the temple and led large numbers of Jews into captivity in Babylonia. The exiles heard the prophet like Ezekiel promised a renewed covenant. Judea had been punished for our sins by exiles and the temple's destruction. Now God would turn his face again to her. She would return again to Jerusalem, delivered out of Babylon, as Israel has been delivered out of Ur, out of Egypt, and the temple would be rebuilt. So hoping to find the reason for God's dissatisfaction, the Israelites in captivity began to study more closely the laws and rituals that formed the basis of their religion and to write about them. They gathered together their tales of the creation of the world and the subsequent history of his chosen people, the Israelites. For the Jews, history was a meaningful story, providentially ordained, a cosmic drama of the unfolding design of the one omnipotent God, for his chosen people. So this is an ongoing tale, isn't it, that's expressed in the Bible of what happened to the chosen people? Absolutely, Dr. Ibal. So just carrying on the story, about 50 years after uh, their defeat of the Jews, uh, the Babylonians were in turn conquered by the Persians under Cyrus the Great, uh, and the exiled Israelites were released from captivity. Uh, Many of them returned to their homeland Uh, and about 538 BC, they began rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. However, not all of them returned to their homeland, and from this period too stems the dispersion uh, spreading out of the Jews. Um, The new Persian masters of Palestine, uh, they allowed the Jews a good deal of religious freedom. However, the Greeks, who had arrived in the 4th century, were not so generous. And although the Jewish people were spread widely, those in Palestine managed to rid their land of foreigners uh, and re-established from 142 BC to 63 BC an independent theocratic state. At that time, no Jew could have envisaged that the imposition of Roman rule by Pompey would in due course mean the disappearance of the last independent Jewish state for nearly 2,000 years. Um, The Jews regarded the Romans as just another invading foreign power who had to be resisted, just as in the past they found it intolerable that Roman law should take precedence over the laws of the Torah. 
Most of the Jews refused to cooperate with the Romans. Uh, they were determined to maintain their own identity and not be swallowed up in the vast expanding imperial power of Rome. Many Jews uh, refused to handle Roman coins because they had pictures of an emperor uh, on them. And this was an emperor who, to the scandal of Jews, was worshipped as a god. Yes, in um, 37 BC, uh, the Roman Senate appointed Herod, a Hellenized Jew, as king of Judea. Now, Herod was a terrible tyrant who was despised by most of the Jews and who was seen as a puppet of the Romans. He died in 4 BC, um, having served his Roman masters well by keeping a very uneasy peace. It is believed that near his death, he ordered the legendary Massacre of the Innocents. The story goes that around the time, many of the Jews were expecting the long-awaited Messiah, the Anointed One, uh, of the House of David, that is, who would come to restore the Kingdom of Israel. And being worried by this, Herod ordered the murder of all male infants in Bethlehem. He wanted no rival. Under Roman rule, Palestine was gripped with excitement and heading for a climax after two centuries of waiting, as noted in the monumental history of the world by J.M. Roberts, and I quote from his book, Into this electric atmosphere, Jesus was born in about 6 BC, into a world in which thousands of his countrymen awaited the coming of a Messiah, a leader who would lead them to military symbolic victory, and inaugurate the last and greatest days of Jerusalem. Um, adding to this, Professor Ninian Smart, um, in his book World Religions and uh, Rights, all this emerges in the book of Daniel, replete with dazzling imagery, after many attacks on the people of Israel by foreign adversaries. God sends a great leader to lead them in defeating their foes, and establishes an everlasting kingdom. The wicked are condemned to perish and the good live on. So you can see quite a picture being painted in terms of prophecy and um, belief. Amjid, um, tell us about the birth of Jesus then and how, how this turned out to be. The birth of uh, Jesus was uh, shrouded in mystery and controversy, but early in his life, Jesus became a Jewish rabbi. He preached a message resting on the conviction that new age had come and his coming and that he had a special relationship with God. He was the awaited Messiah. He often referred to himself with the mysterious title, Son of Man, found in Daniel and elsewhere, but also saw himself firmly embedded within the Jewish world. Jesus' teaching emphasised the gentle elements of the Mosaic teachings, uh, the law of Moses, and condemned the rigid and often cruel application of the law. This was pretty clear from the message Jesus was delivering, and I quote, Blessed are the poor in spirit. This well, is from Matthew. Uh, this is from Matthew's uh, yeah, okay, uh, 5, yeah, 3 to 9. Yeah. Uh, verse 3 to 9. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are that they mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be, uh, they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And that's from Matthew 5, yeah. verse 3 to 9. Unfortunately, this peaceful message did not go down well with the large 
portion of the Jews living under Roman rule. They were expecting a Messiah with a military flair and perhaps supernatural powers who would free them uh, from the uh, Roman uh, yoke. Some of the Jewish leaders tried very hard to get Jesus into trouble uh, with the Romans as illustrated in this uh, passage. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with Herodians uh, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one. For you do not uh, regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then Jesus said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are emperor's and to God things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed and they left him and went away. I mean, this is quite a famous saying which sure separates, you know, state and religion. And these people were clearly trying to get him persecuted and in trouble with the Romans. Uh, Anyway, despite... Uh, Jesus' pronouncements, think not that I come to destroy the law. I have not come to destroy but fulfill, which is from Matthew 5, verse 17. The Jewish authorities found Jesus guilty of blasphemy and falsehood and recommended to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, that Jesus be crucified. Pilate believed in Jesus' innocence, but at the demand of the Jewish people and the priests sentenced him to be crucified. The inscription on the cross on which he was nailed said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This was probably in AD 33, and though AD 29, AD 30 have also been put forward as dates. With the Jewish zealots' refusal to pay tax to the Romans and a call to take up arms against the Romans, the Roman governor responded by arresting numerous Jewish figures and plundering the Second Temple claiming the money was for the emperor. In 66 AD, the Jews rose in revolt against the Romans, and in AD 70, the Roman army descended in full force. The temple at Jerusalem was destroyed again and Palestine obliterated as a Jewish state. Between 600,000 and 1 million Jews apparently were killed, according to some records, and 97,000 were sold into slavery. Another million were dispersed mostly around the Mediterranean area. And after the first century, Judaism and Christianity face each other as two distinct and antagonistic religions. So amazing what uh, um, rebellion against a coin and uh, an emperor can do for you. The Arif take us through the next stages. So just to carry on with what happened, um, I mean, this dispersal of Jews in the different parts of the empire and the relatively peaceful teaching of Christianity, this was appealing to many across the Roman Empire. Uh, The formation of the Christian Bible in the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD was one of the signs that the religion was crystallizing into that fully-fledged form which was known as Christianity. Armed with the zeal of the new Jewish-Palestinian faith uh, and the Greek intellectualism, Christians started spreading rapidly uh, in the empire. Um, As the Greeks and Romans were used to believing in many gods and deities, 
Uh, they had no intellectual hurdle in transforming a prophet into a god. Um, the rise of Christianity in the empire was not without major sacrifices on the part of its followers. Initially, the authorities uh, were very tolerant as long as there was no disrespect or, or obedience to the empire. And the first major clash between the state and the Christian faithful came in AD 64 when Nero tried to saddle them with responsibility for the fire of Rome. Uh, and it's believed that St. Paul and St. Peter may have perished in this time. Um, in AD 202, conversion to Christianity was forbidden under penalty of law. From 303 AD, an edict of Diocletian uh, inaugurated the systemic destruction of churches and burning of Christian texts. Christians denounced to the authorities had to uh, abjure and make sacrifice, uh, while the Christian community was held responsible for every misfortune. According to the official propaganda, the state was suffering the anger of the gods for the neglect uh, of their worship. It was actually mismanagement of all their economy, as we saw in the last program. They needed somebody the to blame. They, they needed, needed somebody to, to blame. Scapegoat the Christians. Now, it was um, Christianity's good fortune that the Roman Emperor Constantine the First, from two hundred and seventy-four to three hundred thirty-seven A.D., accepted this so-called Jewish heresy and made it the state religion. Although Constantine did not formally declare himself a Christian till three hundred and twenty-four A.D. Even earlier, he was greatly influenced by Christianity. The Edict of Tolerance, promulgated in Milan in 313 AD, guaranteed Christianity equality with the other redemption religions of the time and with the official cult. Constantine in 325 AD called the Council of Nicaea in order to more clearly define the Christian faith and the essential tenets of the faith were laid down. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit found their place in the Trinity under the watchful eye of Constantine. The Emperor Julian, uh, later on in 361 to uh, 363 AD, a step-nephew of Constantine, who had received a Christian uh, education, tried to revive paganism. He summed up his own position on Christianity in the words, Ligae intellexi condemnavi, I read I understand and condemn. However, his brief reign ended with his death in the battle against the Persians. Having earned the title of the apostate, naturally the Christians saw this as the judgment of heaven and claimed that the emperor's last words have been tandem visistri Galilee, Galilean thou hast triumphed at last. So Christianity reigned supreme eventually. I'm just... Constantine's work of uniting Christianity to the empire awaited the crowning act, the elevation of Christianity to that of a state religion. The pagan priestly title of uh, Pontus uh, Maximus was abandoned by the emperor Gletian, uh, who died in 383 AD. And in uh, 391 AD, the emperor Theodosius I banned pagan sacrifices and Christianity was now established de facto as the state church officially, basically. Um, the golden images of Jupiter and many Roman gods were forever vanquished and replaced by the doctrine of Trinity. The wealthiest and greatest Western pagan empire, the Roman Empire, had been defeated by a weak non-starter from Palestine, a Jewish heresy named Christianity. 
Constantinople, the new cap- capital uh, designate Nova Rome or New Rome by the Emperor Constantine in AD 330 marked the first step towards the division of the Roman Empire. Theodosius the Great completed this task on his death in 395 AD with his son, but Norius receiving the western half and his elder son uh, Arcadius the eastern, the Byzantine Empire. The two halves of the empire began to move apart, not only in pol- politically, but also in cultural terms. The decision to divide the empire and uh, having two capitals, one in Constantinople and the other in Rome, reinforced the cultural division within Christianity and led to differing political fates for the two parts. The East was stabilized around Byzantine monarchy, and it was not uh, till the coming of the Muslims in the 7th century that it really lost its great tracts of territory. The Western uh, Roman Empire rapidly began to fall apart, and in 410 AD, Alrix's Goth eventually sacked Rome. I think this is probably a good place to stop because we'll move on to the rise of Islam after that. So um, join us again in a short while. Uh, if listeners could give us some feedback, our Twitter handle is at VI Living History. And don't forget to visit our website, www.voiceofislam.co.uk. And under the programs, you'll see Living History programs, a whole variety and lots of different topics. So we'll be back shortly. So welcome back to the second part of um, uh, this program, um, which is on the world of um, conquerors, prophets and reformers, uh, looking at really how uh, uh, money and trade develop uh, under those influences of religion and the state. We finished in the first half looking at the relationship between the Romans and the Israelites and the rise of Christianity. And uh, really, uh, Jesus's message basically said, you know, render on to Caesar what is Caesar's, i.e. when it comes to money, taxes and other things, but you concentrate on your duties to God and uh, don't worry about who has the biggest empire and who has the biggest landmass. It's your inner development that's uh, important. So now in the second part, we come to the rise of Islam. And um, although the the Jews and Christians held fast to their differing beliefs. They shared much of their uh, history and line of prophets. One of the things they seemed to have overlooked was that God had made a promise to the patriarch Abraham that he would bless all his children, including his eldest son, Ishmael. So, Whilst the Jews and Christians were arguing amongst themselves about who was rightly guided by God and who was condemned to hellfire, something stirred in the deserts of Arabia amongst the descendants of Ishmael. One fateful night in the month of Ramadan in 610, um, the common era or the Christian era, the creator of the universe and the God of Abraham revealed himself to the lonely figure of Muhammad a member of the Quraysh clan of Mecca. As Muhammad laid on the floor of Cave Hira, where he used to uh, go for contemplation and reflection, his mind locked in deep contemplation, God opened the channels of communication to him. An unfamiliar presence, which now, of course, we say it was Angel uh, Gabriel, addressed him in the cave and said, Recite, in Arabic that is, to which Muhammad replied, I am not able to recite because he was an illiterate person and he didn't really know uh, writing, etc., literature. 
The presence seized him and clasping him to its bosom, squeezed him hard and then upon releasing him, directed him again to recite. When Muhammad gave the same reply as before, the presence squeezed him again and after the third embrace began the revelation of the Quran. And Arif, if you could uh, read that from uh, Surah Al-Alaq, which is chapter 96, verses 2 to 6, please. Yes, it reads as follows. Recite, Ikra, in the name of thy Lord, who created man from a clinging form. Recite, thy Lord is the most glorious, the most generous, who taught by the pen, taught man what he knew not. Now, the first revelation to the Prophet shows the importance God places on knowledge and the need for man to reflect on nature and his development. Having created and shaped man through different stages, the Quran says, God taught man what he knew not through revelation and the use of the pen. Humanity would not have reached its current position if God had not taught man the value of language and the use of the pen. This was a new experience for Muhammad, of course, and his confidence and understanding grew over the next 22 years as more and more revelations came to him. The final revelation to the Prophet of Islam was announced by God as follows, and this says in its chapter 5 verse 4, This day I have perfected your religion for you and completed my favor unto you and I've chosen for you as religion Islam. So Arif, that is the beginnings of Islam. Take us through the early developments and its contribution. Yes, of course. Just to give some background, um, Islam is the only religion which claims that its very name has been handed down by God himself. Uh, And Muslims are insistent on using this term to designate the system of their faith. Um, Generally speaking, what we call a religion, such as Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and so on, are human creations whose history is part of the wider history of human culture. The only exception to this is Islam. The word Islam is an Arabic word, and it means peace, submission, or obedience. Uh, and Islam can therefore be seen as the attainment by peace, uh, attainment of peace, sorry, by man through his submission and conformity with the will of Allah, who is believed to be the creator of the universe uh, and who gave the revelation of the Quran to Muhammad, peace be upon him. Unlike Christianity, uh, God did not descend from heaven and present himself uh, to man in the form of Jesus as a son of God. He gave a book to a man, the Quran, claimed by Muslims to be the word of God. Um, Whereas the Old and New Testaments were the accounts written by followers long after uh, the historical events had taken place, the revelation of the Quran was written down uh, and collected during the life of the Prophet and standardized and strictly followed uh, and memorized by followers from very early stages. Um, And the life and teachings of the Prophet Muhammad were also written down by his followers Uh, in the form of hadith, which are the sayings of the Prophet, and the sunnah, which are the traditions of the Prophet. These are totally separate documents, um, which, like the Gospels, were written many decades after the Prophet had passed away. Uh, Additional information about Islam is gleaned from the writings of great imams and Muslim scholars. And when one is looking at religion, it is important to distinguish between what is practiced and preached at different times and what the original sources of religion claim and teach. 
Islam encourages interfaith dialogue and it insists uh, that the questions of truth must be tackled uh, in the most reasonable and rational manner with arguments being supported by proof. Again, if I quote from the Quran, this is chapter 28, Al-Qasis, verse 76. It's said in the Holy Quran, We shall draw from every people a witness, and we shall say to them, Bring your proof. Then will they know that the truth belongs to Allah, and that which they use to forge will be lost unto them. Now, the arrival of Islam, in a way, was a divine attempt to reconcile all the world religions and to introduce a higher degree of rationality and philosophical discussion into the world of religion. The Holy Quran clearly shows that prophets of God always urge the people of their time to use reason and reflect upon the nature of things rather than follow superstition or let false pride get in the way of good judgment. Rationality was given due importance by the Prophet himself who constantly prayed, God, Grant me knowledge of the ultimate nature of things, and who instructed his followers to seek knowledge. Muhammad, peace be upon him, the Prophet of Islam, advocated the unity of God and thereby the unity and equality of mankind. The Quran referred to him as an excellent exemplar, that's in chapter 33, verse 22. He denounced the differences of color and race and was a great promoter of education, advocating the pursuit of learning, even onto distant China. He inculcated a love for learning among the illiterate Arabs, which paved the way for their outstanding intellectual achievements. So I'm just take us through some of these that are recognized by non-Muslims and clearly remembered by Muslims. For instance, a Western scholar, uh, Mutkamburi Watt in Muhammad al-Madina writes, and I quote, The more one reflects on the history of Muhammad and early Islam, the more one is amazed at the vastness of his achievements. Circumstances presented him with an opportunity such as few men have had, but the man was fully matched with the other. Had it not been for his gift as seer, statesman and administrator and Behind these, his trust in God and firm belief that God had sent him, a notable chapter in the history of mankind would have remained unwritten. And that's from Montgomery Watt, page 336, and it's also quoted by Sir Muhammad Zafrullah Khan on his book in page 4. The rise of Islam is perhaps the most amazing event in human history, springing from a land and a people alike previously negligible. Islam spread within a century over the half of the earth, shattering great empires, ousting long-established religions, remoulding the souls of races and building up a whole new world, the world of Islam. Max de Mont writes, In the 6th century, the Arabs were desert nomads. In the 7th century, they were conquerors on the march. In the 8th century, they were masters of an empire that made the Mediterranean a Mohammedan land. And in the ninth century, they were the standard bearers of a dozen civilizations, leaders in architecture and sciences, while Western Europe was sinking deeper and deeper into dark morass of their own making. He continues, It is only fitting that tribute be paid to the magnificent Arab people who wrought a dazzling and enlightening civilization out of the desert. Though the Mohammedan Empire is dead, the human element which shaped its grandeur is still living, 
The Arabic culture was not built on the plunders of other countries and the brains of other men. It sprung from deep wells of creativity within the people themselves. For 700 years, the Arabs and the Jews lived side by side in peace and with mutual respect. So that's just a few of the Western writers. Now, many Western writers try to, unfortunately, belittle the religious message of Islam and try to portray the spread of Islam as something driven by conquest and economic need. However, it should be noted that Islam's mission was to satisfy the needs of all human beings and thus catered for man's spiritual, social, moral and economic development and prosperity. Islam introduced itself as an inclusive and all-embracing religion, taking into consideration the totality of man and his life. It introduced a completely revolutionary economic system of its own. The Islamic economic system commences with the premise that all that is in the heavens and earth has been created by God. As a trustee, man will be held accountable for the discharge of this trust on earth. The possession or absence of wealth is a means of trial so that in both abundance and adversity, those who are mindful of their accountability may be distinguished from those who resort to callousness and scant attention to the suffering of the rest of mankind. The Holy Quran states, and I quote, and this is from chapter 16, Verse 72, Allah has favoured some of you above others in worldly gifts, but those more favoured will not restore any part of their worldly gifts to those under their control, so that they may be equal sharers in them. Will they then deny the favour of Allah? Whilst God may have given more wealth to one person or one nation, however, Man's responsibility is to discharge God's trust honestly and equitably. Again, um, this is from the Holy Quran and it's chapter 4 verse 59. Uh, Allah says, Verily, Allah commands you to give over the trust to those entitled to them, and that when you judge between men, you judge with justice. Surely excellent is that with which Allah admonishes you. Allah is all-hearing, all-seeing. The fact that material wealth is a source of trial is expressed in the Holy Quran as follows, Verily, your wealth and your children are a trial, but with Allah is an immense reward. So you can see the whole basis of the economic structure, the welfare system, responsibility of parents and rulers and those who are ruled as well. So Arif, just take us through again how more clearly how Islam helps uh, Yes, absolutely. So again, uh, in practical terms, the Quran not only reminds believers to be mindful of the needy, it also instructs them to uh, to pay the zakat, uh, which is one of the most uh, one of the five most important pillars of Islam. Now, zakat is a, a compulsory giving of two point five percent, one fortieth of one's wealth each year to benefit the poor. Uh, Islam forbids exploitation and the monopoly uh, in all forms and it strictly prohibits unearned interest, such as riba, which is usury, uh, and gambling, etc. It also prohibits the hoarding of wealth, capital, commodities, and supplies, which set in motion spiralling prices and, in general, inflation. Uh, And it quotes as follows in chapter 9, verse 34 to 35, as follows, O ye who believe, surely many of the priests and monks devour the wealth of men by false means, 
and turn men away from the way of Allah. And those who hoard up gold and silver and spend it not in the way of Allah, give to them the tidings of a painful punishment. On the day when it shall be made hot in the fire of hell, and their foreheads and their sides and their backs shall be branded therewith, and it shall be said to them, This is what you treasured up for yourselves, so now taste what you have used to treasure up. Yet Islam grants freedom to individuals to earn money by any lawful means within the Islamic code of economic behavior. Thus there is freedom and right for individuals to possess property and enter into private enterprise. Islam advocates a simple lifestyle, it prohibits extravagance and encourages expenditure. And again, quoted in the Holy Quran, verse 27 to 28, it says as follows, Give thou to the kinsman his due, and to the poor and the wayfarer, and squander not thy wealth extravagantly. Verily, the extravagant are brothers of Satan, and, and Satan is ungrateful to his Lord. So this is from uh, chapter 17, verses 27 to 28, as you said, Arif. Now, the city of Mecca, where Islam originated, arose as a South Arabian settlement around a shrine and acquired significance as a commercial town and religious spiritual pilgrimage center. The main caravans were communal undertakings in which whole tribes participated. These conditions led eventually to a familiarity with money economy, and Byzantine and Persian coins circulated in this exchange economy. The fact that Muhammad worked as a trader for his wife Khadija before his prophetic mission helped to create a favorable attitude towards trade and commercial activities. There were many specific revelations in relation to trade and commerce, meaning the pleasure of God Almighty, and early Muslim traders saw themselves as ambassadors for the spread of Islam. The cities of Mecca and Medina were not only the holy places of Islam, but also the cradle of its culture, its business, and its government. With the collection of zakat, the Islamic Caliphate thus established itself as one of the earliest welfare states. This is after the Holy Prophet clearly passed away, the Caliphate was established as a welfare state. The taxes, including zakat and jizya, and jizya is something that is for non-Muslims imposed as a minor uh, tax, whereas zakat is for the Muslims. So including zakat and jizya, collected in the treasury of Bayt al-Mal, the finance department otherwise, of an Islamic government, were used to provide income for the needy, including the poor, the elderly, orphans, widows and the disabled. Early forms of proto-capitalism and free markets were present in the caliphate. A vigorous monetary economy developed based on the wide circulation of a common currency, the dinar, and the integration of previously independent monetary areas. So again, Amjid, if you could take us through um, some of the developments. Soon after the establishment of Islam, Muslims led the march of civilization with outstanding achievements in many fields, in philosophy, literature, mathematics, medicine, astronomy, chemistry, and trade. This was during the Dark Ages of Europe. They linked the pre-Islamic civilization of Greece, China, Persia, India, Rome, and Egypt, to that of the Arabic and then changed it to that of Renaissance. Their comprehensive achievements were major contributing factors towards the European Renaissance and modern civilization. 
Christendom or the West has tried to form a very distorted image of Islam because of the theological challenges posed by Islam and more importantly the social and economic challenge posed by rapidly growing new civilization bordering Christendom. Uh, to counteract this, all sorts of false accusations were leveled at Islam and many Christians were made to feel uh, they were fighting for light against darkness. It was this hatred and rivalry which united the whole of uh, Christian Europe and prompted the Crusades with sole objective of crushing Islam. The Muslim uh, literary influence was so vast that it was found necessary to translate the Bible and liturgy into Arabic for the use of Christian communities living in Spain, for instance. Commentating on this state of affairs, distressed Christian clergyman wrote, and I quote, My fellow Christians delight in the poems and the romances of the Arabs. They study the works of Mohammedan theologians and philosophers, not in order to refute them, but to acquire a more accurate and elegant Arabic style. Where today can a layman be found who reads the Latin commentaries on the Holy Scriptures? Alice, the young Christian, who are most conspicuous of their talents, have no knowledge of any literature or language save the Arabic. They read and study with avidity Arabian books. They amass whole libraries of them at Waskos, and they everywhere sing the praises of the Arabian Lord. On the other hand, at the mention of Christian books, they disdainfully protest that such works are unworthy of their notice. The pity of it, the Christians have forgotten their own tongue. This is quoted by Dozi in uh, Spanish Islam, um, on page two six. This is a bit like the mullahs uh, now in uh, you know Muslim lands cursing everything from the West. So it's unfortunate our history uh, gets turned around. Anyway, whatever uh, the West thought of the founder of Islam, it was difficult not to admire the achievements of the new dazzling civilization that he had inspired. Baghdad, for example, under the Caliphate of Harun Rashid, uh, that's seven eighty six to eight or nine of the Christian era, was. A city with no peer throughout the world. Um, this is uh, in um, from Khatib, Volume 1, page 119. Though less than half a century old, Baghdad had by the time grown from nothingness to a world center of prodigious wealth and international significance. It was a city full of merchants, poets, musicians, singers, dancers, layers and physicians, it was the city of many tales and legends, including the Arabian Nights. Professor Hitti, in his History of the Arabs, writes, and I quote, In three quarters of a century after the establishment of Baghdad, the Arabic reading world was in possession of the chief philosophical works of Aristotle, of the leading Neoplatonic commentators, and of most of the medical writings of Galen, as well as of Persian and Indian scientific works. In only a few decades, Arab scholars assimilated what had taken the Greeks centuries to develop. So Arif, uh, again, a, a great legacy. Um, to tell us a bit more. Absolutely. Um, so within a century of the Hijrah, which is the time when the Prophet Muhammad migrated from Mecca to Medina, centers for the translation of books into Arabic were established, and Arabic soon became the international and intellectual medium of communication. Um, well-organized centers of learning equivalent or at least similar uh, to those in modern times were established throughout the Islamic world from Bukhara in the east to Muslim Spain in the west. Uh, Western European scholars, scholars as well as followers from other regions and religions flocked to Islamic centers of learning. 
Um, and in fact, the intellectual influence of Islam was so great that in 936 AD, a council was held at Toledo to consider how to stop the impact of Islam on Christianity and the intercourse between the two communities. Because of historical prejudice, Western scientists and historians often ignore the tolerant nature of past Muslim civilization and the contribution it's made to European Renaissance, especially in science. Um, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist Professor Abdus Salam writes, There is no question that Western science is a Greco-Islamic legacy. However, it is commonly alleged that Islamic science was a derived science, that Muslim scientists followed the Greek theoretical tradition blindly and added nothing to the scientific method. This statement is false. Like all periods of intense scientific work, one first builds on what one has inherited. This is followed by an age of maturity when doubts are raised on the teachings of the old masters, followed by a break. Such a break came with the rise of observation and experiment early in the sciences of Islam. Its clearest exponents were Ibn al-Hathim and al-Biruni. This was taken from his book Salam on Islam and the West speech in the UNESCO uh, in April 27 uh, and printed in the Review of Religions in 1984 on page 36. The Muslim civilization certainly was not a service department of Western history, as pointed out by Robert Bifalt in his Making of Humanity, an excellent book, and who writes, The Greeks systematized, generalized, and theorized, but the patient ways of investigation, the accumulation of positive knowledge, the minute methods of science, detailed and prolonged observation and experiment, inquiry, were altogether alien to the Greek temperament. What we call science arose in Europe as a result of a new spirit of inquiry of new methods of investigation, of the method of experiment, and of the development of mathematics in a form unknown to the Greeks. That spirit and those methods were introduced into the European world by the Arabs. Modern science is the most momentous contribution of the Islamic civilization, and this is in the Reconstruction of Religious Thought by um, uh, Sir Muhammad Iqbal in his book Quoted, and I'm sure it'll be in many other uh, books as well. Now, the, these views are reinforced by George Sarton in his monumental uh, work. I'm just, if you could just take through his quote that he writes, uh, uh, George Sarton, in relation to the different periods he covers. Yes, and uh, I'll quote, Thus, from uh, 500 to 400, uh, 450 BC in the age of Plato, followed by the ages of Aristotle, Euclid, Archimedes, and so on, from uh, 750 CE, uh, common era to 1100 uh, of the common era however it is an unbroken succession of the age of Gaiber, Khwarizmi, Razi, Masudi, Ibn Wafa, Al-Biruni and Umar Khayyam. In these 350 years Arabs, Turks, Afghans and the Persian chemists, algebraists, clinicians, geographers, mathematicians, physicists and astronomers of the commonwealth of Islam held the world stage of sciences. Only after 1100 of the Common Era in Sartan's scheme do the first Western names begin to appear. However, for another 250 years, they shared the honours with men of Islam like Ibn Rushd, Nasiruddin al-Tusi, Ibn Nafis, and this is quoted by Salam in UNESCO's review. Muhammad Ibn 
Musa al-Khawarizmi, who was, uh, you know, well-known, and he was uh, lived from 780. I think probably these contributions, Amjad, we're going to cover in the next program because we're probably coming towards the end of our session. So, you know, these some of the great names that we mentioned, Khwarizmi, uh, Al-Biruni, so many philosophers, writers, um, Ibn Haytham, your hero, physicist uh, in, in every way. Uh, I mean, Khwarizmi introduced algebra and the zero, and without that, as we'll cover in the next program, uh, we, we would have major problems in everything that we do in our life. In Al-Biruni, in terms of uh, his study of soils. Circumference of the earth. Yeah. I mean, so many, uh, so there are so many names to cover, and I think some of them we have covered in our previous uh, programs as well. So the accomplishments of uh, Islamic civilization in science was matched in the arts. Um, classics such as the Arabian Nights, new forms of music and lyrical poetry and rhyme verses, which was unfamiliar to the classical Greeks and Latin poets, were introduced to Europe. In the realm of philosophy, Muslims also excelled and were amongst the greatest harmonizers of Greek and the monotheistic beliefs of the Semitic world. In this uh, area, as in other scientific disciplines, the Muslims were less inhibited by religious dogma than the Europeans. And again, this is something important that we're going to uh, come in. The philosophical translations, works of individuals like Ibn Rushd, the Averroes known, uh, you know, basically gave the enlightenment to uh, Europe, etc. So as concluding remarks, I suppose, as we're coming to the end of the Romans, um, the Muslims made a major contribution. There's always been a difference between those, uh, you know, uh, who serve the emperor and those who serve their religious belief and conviction and serve God as well. And we've demonstrated that through the interaction between the Judeo-Christian culture and the Romans. And, of course, the Muslims as they interacted with all the other uh, civilizations uh, uh, as well. Um, Islam did indeed establish a new world order, a world order of Islam. And its capital, Baghdad, you know, was a marvelous uh, place, grew to be probably the wealthiest and greatest city in the world. And again, we've covered this in previous programs. During Al-Mamun's period, which is 813 to 1832, he set up uh, the Bayt al-Hikmah, the House of Wisdom, in which so much good work uh, was done. And all this was achieved through um, administrative excellence, philosophy and theology, but also having a good economy and being able to run and maintain an empire for so long. So I think we've done the subject a reasonable amount of justice. Hope listeners have found this uh, useful. Until the next program, it's uh, goodbye. And please, uh, just a reminder, do give us your feedback on uh, Twitter hashtag at VILivingHistory and do go to the website www.voiceofislam.co.uk and under programs, listen to the SoundCloud programs. There are a whole variety, about 40, 50 programs. Until then, assalamu alaikum.